Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 255. On today's show, we talk about the fascinating region of Alula in Saudi Arabia with Dr. Rebecca Foote. Let's dig a little deeper into the history, prehistory, and all things Saudi Arabia in this area. That was terrible. That's <laughs> <laughs> <It's> awful. <laughs> welcome to the show, everyone. Rachel, how's it going? We are here in Mexico still, so it's lovely weather and still going going great down here. I know. We're down here for four weeks and we're already into our third week. I'm pretty sure next week is our last full week. Yeah, it is. It's crazy. Well, last year we were here for two months, so we're kind of sad that we're not staying longer this year, I think. But yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah. Well, anyway, it's an awesome place and we definitely want to come back time and time again because it's really cool mm -hmm. being down here. And yeah, for sure. Other places that are fun to travel that people may not think about <laughs> are Saudi Arabia and di dialing <laughs> nice in for transition. us. <laughs> nice transition. <laughs> dialing in for us from Saudi Arabia is Rebecca Foote. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks very much. So tell us just a little bit about your background before we get to why you're in, in Saudi Arabia. What's your what's your back educational background and your archaeological background? I am an archaeologist specializing in the early Islamic period. I have a PhD in, well, it's a long story, in the American Academy. If you work on a historic period, you don't usually end up in, a, in an archaeology department. That's more for prehistory. So mm -hmm. I went to Harvard and I, I was in the, the history of art and architecture department. And my advisor happened to also have done archaeological research. So that's why he took me on. So what brought you to Saudi Arabia? Well, the part of the Islamic world that I focused on in my PhD was what we would call the Arab heartlands today, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Israel, Palestine, and Northwest Arabia. And I wrote mm -hmm. on markets, early Islamic markets for my PhD. But at the same time, I was also excavating at a site in the south of Jordan called Humayma, which had presence there. It had been founded by the Nabataeans and then occupied up until the early Islamic period. So I worked on a residential and mosque complex. Mm -hmm. But the, the landscape is basically the same national borders, as we all know, our modern invention. And so, for example, the Hizma Desert that starts at this site in Humayma travels into Northwest Arabia and the culture groups, the Nabataeans, some of your listeners may have heard of them because Petra is fairly well known. That was their capital, mm. but they All had right. this major Southern city in where I am now in, in El Ula called Hegra. So the place was familiar to me. And when, even though I'd never been there because I was mostly excavating in the nineties back when tourism or even visiting was, was difficult to come to Saudi Arabia. So 
I, uh, when the opportunity was presented to me that they were starting this thing called the Royal Commission for Al Ula, which has many aspects to it. The general aim is to develop a visitor destination. And because the heritage is so rich here and the landscape is so beautiful and the interplay of the two historically that had everything to do with the type of human activity here. When the opportunity came to be able to finally come to Saudi Arabia and to be a part of formulating what we would study and how it was basically, there had been some archaeological inquiry here, exploration, excavation, a bit of survey, but not very much. So it was this unknown to help reveal to the world as well as just personally for me to finally see this place that had been part of my own studies. Mm -hmm. So we were introduced to you through another organization that was, you know, seeking to get this region and the work you guys are doing out there basically out to the world. And, and there was a, actually a conference back in September, which prompted a little bit of this reach out too that took place over there. But let's back up on that a little bit. Cause you've already mentioned Alula. Can you tell us a little bit more about, I guess what this region looks like today versus what it looks like in the past and, and what the preservation and, I guess, what the what the goal of the preservation works that you guys are doing in all the archaeology moving forward? Well, so physically, mm-hmm. it is a couple hundred miles inland from the Red Sea coast, the western. So it's on the western side of Saudi mm-hmm. Arabia towards the north, as I said. And it's there's a mountain range that comes down the west side called the Hejaz. We are on just to the east side of that. And then there are uplands a bit further east. So we're in this right here, this natural, beautiful valley, kind of like Sedona, mm-hmm. if you imagine the red sandstone, but but a real Hemden Valley. And in an otherwise arid place where you have natural availability of water or water that you can manage to sustain life, that has everything to do with how and why people settle wherever they do. And even though, say, more than 6,000 years ago, like 10,000 to 6,000 years ago, it was a less arid place. It was like savanna mm. land for right. it has various degrees of aridity, but it's been quite dry here for, for a long time. So that water issue is everything to do about either settling somewhere or if you're passing through here you want to get from, say, the south of the peninsula to the north, you need to plan your stops where you could get water. So that has everything to do with this place, and it's important. Mm. We could talk about the domestication of the camel, too, which is what enabled long-distance travel with goods. So that's, there's some debate, of course, exactly when that happened, but probably around 1200 BC or sometime at the later end of the second millennium BC. So then there were these, you've probably heard of the incense trade, frankincense and myrrh. Mm -hmm. We all know that Mm -hmm. from certain (laughs) religious contexts, if not otherwise. And Mm -hmm. so that travel through here is the first that we really know of big long distance trade and other Goods were also traveling with that, some of them of higher and lesser value, like there are also semi-precious stones from the south, for example. And then eventually 
again, in that first, right after the domestication of the camel, the first millennium BCE. Mm-hmm. And then later, as the monsoons are uh, harnessed by better watercraft, then other things coming, say, from South Asia also feed into that network. But okay. so the first big settlement here in the valley that we know of called Dedan is mentioned in the Bible by Ezekiel mm. and is mentioned as a trading post. But also one thing that people overlook when they talk about trade or other types of travel, also you need food stuff. So there's usually a lot of cultivation that's that's going on there as well. And the, the earliest palm that we know of that was being cultivated here is about the time a little bit earlier, but then it seems to be intensified and expanded in in the first millennium. So that's, like I say, the first big settlement that we know about. It became rich through both the local production as well as we don't know specifically exactly how they exacted some sort of income from the trade, but probably some form of tax or something to pass through. Okay. And then Later, after Denon Hegra, which I mentioned before, which is the southern major city, at least so far revealed, in the Nabataean Empire, which, again, was capitalizing on this trade in particularly incense. That's really high value good that, that we know was in, for example, very high demand in the Roman Empire at the same time. So we're talking about around 100 BCE to 106 when Trajan then annexes that Nabataean empire. And mm. we know at that time, the demand was super high. Incense was being shoveled on, you know, anyone with any means for conspicuous consumption, shoveling onto pyres of, <laughs> of funerary wow. situations. So Hegra then is again, another one. That's where the famous tombs, the carved facades. Are you familiar with Petra? Yes. So similar to that, that seems to be a benchmark or the touchstone for for many people that they've heard of and know of those iconic, highly ornate facades for these tombs. And then there are similar ones here, but in a very different context in in an open plain at the at the North Oregon Valley. Okay. And then with the, with the rise of Islam, the the Muslim religion here in the early seventh century, that travel of a different sort pilgrimage travel had everything to do with the vibrance of human activity here. Because from the north and a bit from the northwest and northeast, there were routes that traveled through here on their way to Mecca and Medina for the Hajj, one of the five pillars, one of the must-dos, if you possibly can, for a Muslim mm. at some point in their life to visit those holy centers. So there have been different reasons over history why people pass through here or settled here. That it's in addition to its its natural availability of water and this, like I said, this valley that sort of on the uplands there wasn't much water, so you were sort of forced. It was also easier to pass through there than than in the uplands surrounding it. It had a great localized artistic community. For example, the sculpture here is is very interesting. It's got its own expression, but seems to be influenced mm. by Egypt and Greek and Mesopotamian as well. So you, it, it's reflected here, with these other okay. cultures that had something to do with the people passing through or who came to stay. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, I think with that, we'll take a break and then find out a little bit more about the archaeology you guys have been doing on the other side. Back in a minute. 
Hey, podcast fans, I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons, just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out, or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of Liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code TAS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code TAS at liquidiv.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 255, and we've got Rebecca Foote on, and we're talking about a really interesting region in Saudi Arabia, Alula, and I want to talk about now, there's the directive or the, the I guess the way to understand it over here in the United States would be the government agency that's controlling this, is the Royal Commission for Alula, and I, I just want to talk about the Royal Commission for Alula's, the RCU, we'll call it, the 2023, the end of the field season that you guys just had. You were telling me on the break that you guys work generally the last half of, you know, the year there from like October to the end. And then people take a break because they have to. <laughs> in archaeology, you collect a lot of things and data and you have to process that data and then also go home and see your family and then come back for the, you know, winter spring session. But summertime is not where you would work in the Middle East because it's too hot to work there. So that's when that happens for this particular region. So talking about that, your first half of your winter, fall to spring, 2023, 2024 field season, what did you guys work on? And, and were there any major discoveries or finds or anything like that that we want to talk about? Yeah, well, we had 12 projects in the field in the fall, and they are the variety of activities that people classically think of for archaeology, like excavation and mm -hmm. survey, but then some that are less well known to people who haven't been closely following how multidisciplinary it has become. So you also study the archaeobotany, the seeds or the animal bones so that you can understand the diet and what might have been cultivated or hunted or domesticated. Also, geoarchaeology, even a bit further afield for most people, mm -hmm. would be studying the landscape, the dynamics of the site, physical site formation. So soil and water resources and how they established the possibilities for human occupation and then how it was, for example, water again, that we've talked about and often will because of 
a situation like this where, well, I mean, it's crucial anywhere, but it's not so available here. How people then manage that water and how it ebbed and mm. flowed over time and sh maybe shifted. Like here, we have these four major settlements, two of which I mentioned before. So Dedan and Hegra, Kor, and a place called Old Town that people actually lived in until the 1980s are these four major settlements. There were other, because it was such a, a fertile valley, that other places that people lived in smaller clusters or individual farmsteads. But these four major settlements, no one of them seems to be inhabited for more than 600 years, hmm. or at least that's what we thought. And so getting to your question about what are we finding that in that initial settlement I mentioned before, back in the first millennium BCE, the, the Dedanites, that was the site of Dedan. And then there were these two dynasties there, kingdoms, the Dedanites and the Lichenites. We learning more and more about them, uh, practices in burial. And again, I mentioned when the domestication of the and full intensive cultivation of the date palm, but then other crops that, that are introduced and a part of the, the local diet. So it sounds like you guys are working in a lot of different areas. And, you know, Chris and I have done CRM in the United States. And a lot of the places that we've worked have been, you know, chosen because there's development going on there and they need to do the work ahead of building something. And so we're wondering if that is one of the reasons why you guys have chosen the sites that you're working on, or if there's another reason. Yeah, just give us a little bit more information about the reasoning behind those choices. Okay, good question. So I run the, the research-led part of archaeology here. And so I have the luxury, in a way, of deciding where we're going to excavate that's not at risk or survey or, mm -hmm. um, or run uh, further studies. I do have a colleague, though, who runs the development-led section of archaeology. So exactly as you know very well, when they're going to decide to build a cultural asset or a resort or a gym or something, that there needs to be a full HIA and ESIA and so a heritage impact assessment and environmental impact assessment. And so mm -hmm. that... that of course, it still generates research if they find something. So then we work to have that fed into our domain here so that it isn't lost or siloed. But the, those teams that come to carry the, that development-led workout, of course, they write reports, et cetera, but their, their aim is not to then do the follow-up research and publish it. So those okay. results will get fed in. So. But what we're cho choosing is, as I started to mention before, was the these four main settlements, Dedan, Hegra, then the others I hadn't mentioned before, Kura, which is the early Islamic big city, second only to Mecca in the mm -hmm. early 10th century. And then this old town that was inhabited from at least around the 10th century until the 1980s. Jeez. So it's a mud brick village. Which is now being adaptively, that's a big part of the development project is adaptively reusing that. So mm. there's a boutique hotel and <laughs> shops and restaurants, and it's really been a, re, a rejuvenation project, engaging the locals a lot in the learning about different parts of the city, who lived where, and and how it was activated and, and really lived in and used. And mm. And what's interesting is that there's this 
900 plus houses tightly packed in this so-called old town, but it's immediately adjacent to the oasis. So it was basically their kitchen garden going out uh, the back lanes of this town. Everyone had their own oasis farm that they lived in in the summer for sure, because it was cooler there, but also they were tending their fields. And then they, anyway, like wheat and other field crops were grown in the winter months. So it isn't that they abandoned there, but it gets quite cold here in the winter. So they wouldn't necessarily live out there. They would be living in the the warmer old town. And probably historically, all these, because it's a basically an agrarian society and the people were living with respect to the, with close proximity uh, to where they were cultivating the fields as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm super interested in hearing more about the city where you have kind of modern people living with the archaeology and the kind of work that you're doing to teach them about it but also to probably preserve and maintain anything that is of significance as well. So if you want to speak more about that, that would be really awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's a big challenge because the, so everyone left living there in the 1980s, but okay, they all were, their, their homes meant a lot to them. So many of the people who work for the commission are from Elula and many of them, their parents or their grandparents lived in Old Town. And these people who are now in their 20s, 30s, 40s, remember going, their mm. their parents or grandparents would take them to their house and they would tell them about what life was there. They would have picnics or tea or whatever. I mean, gradually over time, because it's mud brick and it wasn't maintained, it became more and more ruinous. But they all knew about it. And that's where there's a lot of positive response to the fact that it is being rejuvenated. That's very cool. It's a very unique situation because usually we're so far removed from the people that used to live in places that are being worked on, but it's really neat to have that like nostalgic connection to this place through an, a relative that you actually like still have with you. That's that's really cool and <laughs> sounds very different and unique. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, it's, it's really the cultural heart. I mean, many people come here because... Hegra was the first UNESCO World Heritage Site inscribed in Saudi Arabia, mm. and it's still probably the most spectacular one. And a lot of people have their bucket list of wanting to mm-hmm. visit World Heritage Sites. But as far as the local community and in a sort of, and physically, actually, a lot of the restaurants and the happenings are in and around that old town. And then there's a new town that grew up mm-hmm. from there in parallel from, say, the early 20th century. That's also becoming quite a focal point, which hadn't been for for many years either. So it's, yeah, it's great to see how the community is engaging and it's becoming alive. That's really awesome. All right. Well, let's take a break right there and we'll come back on the other side and talk a little bit about the inaugural conference you guys had there, the World Archaeology Summit back in 2023. So we'll do that on the other side of the break. 
spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney, make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusion supply. See store or jcp.com for details. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 255, and we are wrapping up our discussion with Rebecca Foote about Alula, a region in Saudi Arabia that she's been working in. And we want to talk, before we get into the end of this conversation and talk about the summit that you guys had last September, let's talk a little bit about the prehistory of the area, because we've talked a little bit about some of the historical stuff and things you guys are working on, but it's also got a fascinating prehistory, which... Maybe you can define prehistory first, because that has a slightly different definition depending on what culture and region that you're talking about. So we'll, do, we'll start with that and then get into some of the finds and, and the prehistory of the area. Okay. So prehistory generally would refer to the period before we have written accounts. So here, mm-hmm. that's before the first millennium BC. That's when uh, a variety of languages are actually spoken and written here. It's a, it's a really... It's one thing I haven't mentioned before, but it's a really written rich. Can you say that? Yeah. There culture that there are etched and carved in stone. There are nine ancient languages here. Mm. Some that you may have heard of if you've interviewed other people in the East, Aramaic or Thamudic, but then also this localized mm-hmm. Dedanitic. Then there's mm. some later on Greek and Latin. So that's the point at which we would start saying you're getting into history or proto-history because they actually weren't writing histories here. They were inscriptions, monumental inscriptions on stone. So for us, prehistory here is mostly where we've been having most of the finds are later prehistory. So the Neolithic, Calcolithic, Bronze Age, these may be time periods you have heard of before. Mm -hmm. Even earlier than that, the Paleolithic, we have stone tools, some really cool stone tools, hand axes and arrowheads of all varieties. But the the majority are this later prehistory. So we're talking about 6,000 BCE, so 8,000 years ago, is when building in stone starts. And then there's explosion, this explosion. So in this lands, broad landscape survey that we ran first, most of, particularly outside the valley, most of the, the types of structures that were recorded out of the thousands that were, were these stone structures that are locally quarried, small stones, dry laid, and in a variety of, of shapes and sizes. So there are these big rectangular ones, mustatils, which have since then been excavated. They seem to have a ritual function related to horned animals. They have a mm. chamber at one end where deliberately they were placed. The upper cranial parts, not even lower, so not even the mandible, but the maxillary, so the upper teeth, the mm-hmm. horns, the other parts of the cranium. And they're both wild and domestic. So there are gazelle and ibex and oryx, but then also cattle and sheep and goat. And they seem to have been deliberately placed there. Now, because there's no written word at the time, and there's there are some hearths in front of some of those chambers, it's deliberate, it's ritual, is it religious? Is there any intercessor there with a sense of 
a deity or, you know, we, there's no evidence for that at the moment. So we don't really know, even though they're very carefully butchered, there's no evidence for feasting, say, in the big courtyard that's in front of, of okay. these chambers. So so there's that. Then there's so-called kites, desert kites. They, they're called that because pilots looking at them in the early 20th century, but they <laughs> looked like children's kites. So not even a conventional kite, like a diamond, but mm-hmm. yeah. the old-fashioned children's kites that had streamers on them. So they have these kind of tentacles on them, and they are probably traps for for wild animals that you would drive, say, gazelles that are traveling across the landscape into them. And then, sadly, they had these pits at the ends where animals would fall to their death. Mm -hmm. So those are spread throughout, not just the Middle East, but as far up into Central Asia. And in fact, just yesterday... In the Guardian, they mentioned one that was found overseas on the Baltic coast off of Germany that they think it looks, that's how it's being interpreted. If you Google that, you can find that article. That's how they're Mm. interpreting them, that they were once obviously not underwater and that they may even have had a reach that far. So those all are earlier structures. Also, these things called standing stone structures that are circular Mm -hmm. and have standing single slabs, orthostats, in, not exactly orthostats, but standing stone slabs in them that probably then supported a superstructure and they appear to be domestic. There are other kinds of enclosures that may have been pens for animals or could have been inside of which people lived with some sort of organic structure that no longer exists today that would have been the housing unit. Okay. And then the first real monumental tombs that we have are probably Bronze Age, seemed to start in the third millennium BCE, so like 5,000 years ago. And there are thousands and thousands of them. There are more of them that comprise an amazing funerary landscape. But we haven't found the settlements with them. So there are all Hmm. these places where people have spent a lot of time and human resource in building these various types of stone structures that must have required some form of community of some size that would have been building them. So it's helping us to rethink really the nature of society at that time and um, how people cooperated and had enough time or division of labor or something, a more segmented society than many people have thought they would have been to as well. Someone else is out hunting and gathering others are building or whatever. I mean, that's just an, an idea I've, I'm not a specialist yeah. of that period, but um, it's a. I'm following the steep learning curve by leading this whole enterprise here in archaeology. Yeah, so it seems like, and we've talked about desert kites on this show before, so we have a yeah. little bit of familiarity with them. So it seems like they are kind of like just out in the desert, right? So is it possible that multiple communities maybe came together and built them in a location that they could all access and it wasn't necessarily associated with just one settlement and they were sort of shared structures between a bunch of different ones. Is that possible? Have you guys looked sure. into that kind of an, a thing? Sure. Sure. That's possible. What's mm. interesting is that there can sometimes be sort of clusters. You, you, mm. They're not. Mm-hmm. So then you wonder if they aren't for different communities, 
but mm. there isn't a real regularity in the way they're distributed across the landscape. So it's, you know, that's a, that's a good point. It's a good thought. Uh, really so many possibilities come to mind. Hmm. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, as we're wrapping this up, let's talk about the World Archaeology Summit, the inaugural World Archaeology Summit 2023 that was held in Alula back in September, I believe it was. We've talked, I think, it just in general on this show before about some conferences that Rachel and I attend occasionally. And those conferences are generally data and paper driven. And, and they're generally for, you know, usually just archaeologists or people even specialized in a certain region. And you go there, you present your research, your findings, you talk to your colleagues and things like that. But this was something a little bit different. Can you tell us a little bit about the style and format of this conference and the and the intent, intent behind it or summit? We'll call it a summit because it wasn't a conference. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, yes, exactly as you say, there are plenty of conferences out there that are more regional focused or thematic focused or and data driven. But mm -hmm. the reason why we were thinking that we would do something different that's not only interdisciplinary, but intersectorial. So to bring government, non-government, profit, non-profit, media, tourism, technology, all kinds of different organizations from different sectors together to rethink what archaeology can bring to those sectors, what those sectors can do to enhance our work, how we can make it more relevant, more accessible, more dynamic in the modern world. Hope to solve problems, maybe make mm. the world a better place, as idealistic <laughs> as that sounds, but right. learning, of, learning about and engaging with the past can and should help to inform the future, mm -hmm. we think. So, um, and because we are this multipolar kind of a organization where we are developing a visitor destination, but also helping to refashion the city. We have a county operations department. We have a planning department where we engage with them for master planning, not only to help identify where the heritage is so it's protected, but also to help inform as they're planning what to build there and how to create its profile thematically or something that if it has more to do with place, I think many people who come to a place or who live in a place want what there is here to offer be reflective of that place too. So we're through our work here and elsewhere in the world, trying to engage with other people to brainstorm. So that's one reason why it's an international summit to get mm -hmm. an infusion of how they're dealing with the same issues in South America or East Asia or Australia and bring that all together to, I mean, it was basically a brainstorming session of various types of interactives. So there were these more plenary sessions where there was a panel of four or five people with a moderator where there were mm -hmm. questions that they had had before and a theme. So there were four themes to it, which were identity, ruinscapes, resilience, and accessibility. And they're broad enough that many people from many different disciplines, although it was a lot of archaeologists who were members of these panels, there were also people from other parts of cultural heritage. So museum, conservation, cultural heritage management, 
resource management. Mm -hmm. But then also we had some people from the media, from governmental institutions, from technology database developers. And we want to broaden that out even more. We were on a tight time scale. So we, we did our best to come up with ticking all the boxes we wanted to, but uh, we're working very hard to access people from more places in the world. We also had students who come because it's one of the huge things that we are engaged in is investing in, and it's a big part of Saudi Arabia's uh, Vision 2030, which is investing in the next generation, mm -hmm. particularly here for Saudis to uh, train them to early career professionals to enhance their professional development by there's a scholarships program. They go abroad to study formally and informally, but that we also bring institutions and individuals here to train people in bespoke programs for things okay. like conservation, which isn't already available here. So we wanted to bring that to the larger stage. And so had 25 students here from around the world, as well as 25 that were from Saudi Arabia itself. And so we don't want it to just be the more mature scholars, but that whole range to get the ideas that you get from someone seasoned, but someone new, as well as the perspectives from all the different sectors, as I mentioned. So it's mm -hmm. hoping to find a new platform that isn't anywhere else. Number one, who wants to do what anybody else is doing and who would want to come if somebody else is doing it, <laughs> but also because it helps inform what we're doing here that's so multifaceted and hoping to share what some of the things are that we've learned maybe the hard way and sharing the solutions that, that we found. So yeah, we'll, we'll come up okay. with more themes for the next one and more and different people from a broader spectrum, we hope. Awesome. Bridget? Yeah, that's that's great. I, I love when archaeologists kind of like leave the ivory tower a little bit, you know, and make it more accessible to people who maybe wouldn't have considered archaeology as a career. And I think this is a constant conversation that happens in a lot of different places around the world is how to get people from the actual country, from the place to to get interested in the work and then become archaeologists and then become the next generation of archaeologists doing the work. I think that's one of the most important things that you can do in an area like Saudi Arabia or anywhere else that doesn't have a really like strong academic presence yet, but it can have it and it will have it with programs like this. So it's really cool to hear that that's what you guys are doing. And, you know, also the public outreach part of it, like, cause you know, Chris and I, we're always trying to talk archaeology to people who aren't archaeologists. So <laughs> like, <laughs> so just like making the information more accessible sounds amazing. So it sounds like you guys are doing some really, really great work over there to, to that end. Thank you. Yeah, we're trying and uh, <laughs> we appreciate you, but also, you know, lots of people to build a village. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> I, I'm curious yeah. for when you are trying to muster up interest uh, or is it met with enthusiasm oh always i would say oh I yeah mean, yeah definitely yeah we we talk to a lot of people in our little rving lifestyle that you know are outside of our normal sphere of colleagues and friends which are mostly archaeologists and you know, nobody here's an archaeologist in front of me right now and they're always 
all very fascinated. In fact, we've gotten a lot of our RVing friends to, to be listeners. So welcome to the show, guys. Yeah. <laughs> to be listeners of the show because they're because ever I feel like everybody's interested in archaeology in some way, shape, or not. You know, they might be more interested in a region or something like that, but I feel like everybody's interested in history and, and prehistory and, and just learning more yeah. about it. So yeah. it's 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 always met with some enthusiasm. The information just has to be presented in a way that is interesting, not boring academic papers. I'm sorry, but like, it can be so right. dry sometimes, you know? So yeah. yeah, making it more accessible, I think is so, is so great. <laughs> yeah. Yep. yeah. Yeah. Well, and one thing that we're going to be doing very soon is setting up the Indiana Jones experience that someone could have who always wanted to, but ended up being oh. a banker instead. Oh, is, oh boy, you are speaking <laughs> our language. <laughs> so some, one of the excavations is going to include what could be called a work holiday or something where mm-hmm. you, uh, you come for a couple of weeks and are trained at the basics of archaeology. And then you're mm-hmm. actually in the trenches and, and helping us reveal that site. Cool. Well, if Very only... Cool. If only you guys knew some archaeologists that happen to be podcasters, they could come there <laughs> and also only. talk about it. So, right? Only. Yeah. We are good right. at talking. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Probably more so than digging at this point. But you know. <laughs> I know that feeling. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, and I think there's plans to do some more podcasts, uh, possibly even with yourself, but definitely about the region and and with people working over there through this same organization. So I look forward to hearing more good information coming out of there and just learning more about the area. So Rebecca, thanks for joining us on the show today. Well, thanks, Chris and Rachel, for your interest. It's been a great conversation. For sure. Awesome. And we'll see everybody else next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.